0: Welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I'm Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Sheatham, And today we continue our study through the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, we took a little bit of a break from that. I think, was that last week, Sean? We, no, we didn't. Yes. No, it was it last week. week we did, We did Leighton? Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm way off today. <laughs> so yes, we took a break last week to respond to Leighton Flowers. And we're continuing our study today in the Confession, the uh, LBCF. And we're going through Chapter 11 today. Um, One thing I wanted to note um, is we are on YouTube, as we noted before. Please subscribe to our channel. It's called The Particular Baptist. Please subscribe to get the latest uh, updates on our videos. Um, We're also starting to post them after we post on the YouTube channel uh, to the Facebook page. Um, But... Yeah, If you want to get alerted on the latest videos, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. And with that, Sean, I will turn it over to you to introduce our topic in Chapter 11 today.
1: All right. So Chapter 11 is on justification. And honestly, this is probably one of the more important chapters in the Confession. Uh, the whole reason the Protestant Reformation started was over an issue in regards to justification. And... A lot of people today might be like, oh, well, okay, so the Protestants and Roman Catholics thought it was an important idea to argue about, but what is it really? Does it really have that? Is it really an important thing for us to worry about today when there's so much else going on? And uh, I do think it is very important. Um, Paul in Galatians tells us, but if we or an angel, this is Galatians uh, 1, verses 8 through 9. But even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And then Paul goes on in the rest of his letter to talk about justification. The issue he was worried about uh, creating a different gospel was justification. And he made sure to clarify Justification is by faith and not by works. So uh, this is a very important chapter, and we want to get justification right. It was important enough for the Apostle Paul to give out this warning.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. This really goes to the core of what we believe as Christians. This is a gospel issue. Uh, This is not an issue that we can um, disagree on as Christians or uh, disagree on at all. We have to have this right or we will have an incorrect gospel. Um, So with that, we'll dive into paragraph one. And this paragraph lays out what justification is. It basically gives a formal definition. It says, to those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death, for their whole and sole righteousness, by receiving and resting on him in his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is a gift of God. So, they really lay out in great detail one, what justification is and what it is not. In here, what they are saying is that justification means that we are accounted as righteous in God's sight by faith in Jesus Christ. And what that means to be accounted is that uh, our account of actions or deeds that are done, good or bad, are imputed by Christ's righteousness, those acts that he did living in accordance with God's law perfectly, and accrediting them to us through faith as if we had done them ourselves. So thereby, God can look at us and and say, yes, you have kept my law. It's as if you've kept my law. And so our standing before God is no longer guilty, but it is uh, now not guilty, and God can let us into his kingdom justly and forgive us on the basis of his law being satisfied. And this is done on, on two fronts. We don't just see this with Christ, what we call Christ's active obedience, where he kept the law actively. Uh, but we see this in his passive obedience, where Christ satisfied uh, God's wrath. He paid for our sins on the cross. And that is imputed to us in the sense that uh, that it's as if we have satisfied the punishment for sin as well. So God can truly forgive us and truly uh accept us as not guilty into his kingdom because the scripture says that no one can see god and live because of our sin scripture says that the soul that sent us shall die so there is a, a punishment for sin that must be accounted for in order for us to uh, to meet god's standard and to see him so this allows god to be just and allows us to uh, not have to actually have kept the whole law ourselves um, but it 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 means that God is not compromising his nature either.
1: Exactly. Yeah. God is just, and he has to accomplish justice. If he were to merely pass over sin and just forgive it, would we, would we say he's just, if someone commits murder and God was to be, yeah, you know, it doesn't matter. That would be evil. That would be wicked. Uh, so God must maintain his justice. Uh, and it's also important to emphasize that this is an alien righteousness. It's right. not a righteousness of our own. Many people today might have an issue understanding that, saying that, oh well, th- well don't we need to be right and uh, righteous uh, to be right with God? And the answer is no, in terms of salvation, actually. And I want to read a little bit from uh, Paul writing to the Philippians here. Uh, he, he starts off in chapter 3 talking about how he would have reason to boast that he was Hebrew of the Hebrews. Um, concerning zeal, he was, he was persecuting the church, showing his zealousness. Uh, he says in verse 6, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But then in verse 7, he goes on, but what these things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. of his sufferings, being comforted to his death, sorry, conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So in Paul's mind, he doesn't want his own righteousness. Obviously, he would want to be righteousness in the sen- be righteous in the sense that it's good, but he's not looking for his own righteousness. He wants an alien righteousness, one that comes from God through faith, so that he might attain the resurrection of the dead if you're pursuing a righteousness that's your own and looking to that, you will not attain a resurrection to the resurrection from the dead.
0: Right. And we, and that goes back to ensuring that we have a proper, proper anthropology Mm. Um, because if Paul didn't believe that he was really as bad as he could have been, there's no reason to say that my works are rubbish. At least some of them would be acceptable, right? Logically speaking, Mm -hmm. if I believe that, I'm not as bad as I really could be in terms of uh, total depravity. And we see that in Romans chapter three, verse nine, Paul says, what then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruined in misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So we see the dire state that man is in. And I think this is where they, uh, where it is addressed in the confession here in paragraph 1 they're very careful to distinguish between what imputed righteousness is and infused righteousness. Um, They're not saying that we actually become righteous inherently as if our nature somehow meets the, the requirement that God has laid out in his law, but that it is, it is an imputed righteousness and we are treated as if we have kept the whole law. So there's a big difference there. The Catholic church, believes that we have an in, uh, in infused righteousness, uh, while the Reformers, Martin Luther, believed in imputed righteousness. Very different, and that's an important distinction that needs to be made.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, I don't think I have anything else in the first paragraph. Did you have anything else, Dan?
0: No. No, okay. we can move on to paragraph two.
1: All right. I'll uh, read paragraph two. Sounds good faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. So this is very important because it goes into what type of faith it is that um, a justified person will have. Not that faith plus works justified you, but that this kind of faith is the faith that justifies, the faith that is accompanied by works. And James uh, says this in his uh, epistle saying, essentially, uh, I will show you my faith by my works. And uh, talking about faith without works being dead, um, how, how can that faith save a person?
0: Right. And and that's and ironically, Catholics like to use this verse to say that we are somehow justified, meaning we are saved by our works, um, and not by faith alone. Uh and we know that they take that verse out of context or that passage out of context. I'm looking for Mark one fifteen, which hints at this to some extent. Um and basically what they're saying is yes, it's not alone. It's not just a, a blind faith that just says, Yeah, I acknowledge Jesus, you know, is God, I believe that he died on the cross. James also says that the demons believe who Jesus is, and they tremble, but they're not saved. So it's a faith that is accompanied by repentance. And you see this in Mark one fifteen, where Jesus begins his ministry. He's, he went around preaching, verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So there, not only, is, even though faith is the instrument by which the imputed righteousness of Christ, salvation, justification comes, it is not alone in the sense that you cannot uh, turn from your old lifestyle and be truly saved. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, as we'll see mm-hmm. here later on, but it means that there will be a, a shift, a changing of the mind, you know, the Greek word for repentance, metanoia, mm-hmm. to, turn, to change the mind, to turn away from that which is evil and turning to that which is good. It's a turning away from how I used to live in a turning to Christ and an embracing of the gospel. So while repentance and faith are not the same act, they go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other.
1: Exactly. Or at least saving faith you can't have with repentance. And looking at it from a purely human perspective, if if someone's coming to you and saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I don't feel the need to follow him or obey him. Uh, I can do whatever I want. I would have to begin to question whether or not you truly believe in Jesus. If you believe he is who he says he is, that A, he has the right to command you what to do, um, and B, that what he commands is always good. It's always for your best and for the best of those around you. Why would you not at least even try to obey him? And as Dan mentioned, we're not perfect. We, We fail all the time. I'm not saying that we would expect it to be perfect, but I would expect for someone who says that they believe in Jesus to at least be making an attempt to follow him. There's no reason not to. Um, So in some sense, if somebody says they believe in Jesus, but don't try to do anything that uh, he tells them to do, I have to say, well, in in a very real sense, you don't believe in him.
0: Right. Because your actions will always follow from what you believe. If you don't really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, you don't believe the gospel, you're not going to actually live it out and i think this is the mindset that paul was having in romans 6. Mm. you know if you've died to how can you say you've died to sin yet still live in sin how can you continue to hold on to your old life while claiming to be changed they they don't mix it's a contradiction in terms and in in an action so it's very care we have to be very careful to understand that while repentance and our works flowing from our our faith are not salvific they do accompany and prove that we are Christians and show evidence that we are Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we,
1: we as uh, particular Baptists, as Calvinists, recognize that salvation is a work of God. So while I can understand why some synergists might not hold to this, at least for a Calvinist, essentially what you're saying for the person that doesn't try to repent is God is able to save them but not able to cause them to become more holy which is an odd concept because obviously God desires for us to be holy and he will um, help us and change us to be holy in this life. So it's a very weird thing for a Calvinist to come around and, and essentially be, uh, it doesn't matter. You know, God can, God has saved me. It's all good. It's like, no, God did save you, but he also did save you for the purpose of becoming holy. And now you're saying essentially he's going to fail at that. Yeah, and, that, and that's so. kind
0: of the trap of the, the anti-lordship salvation crowd, mm-hmm. you know, in the, I, I think you see that in the IFB movement, Independent Fundamental Baptists, this push against repentance as if it's a work. And we're not, mm-hmm. we don't say that. If you believe that repentance is a gift of God, that's not a problem. But we do believe that you still have to turn. You're not going to be saved if you don't turn, but we don't believe that is something that comes from you inherently. Mm-hmm. It is a gift of God just like faith is. Mm-hmm. But you have to turn from your sins. If you're gonna live consistently with scripture and live consistently in light of uh the the holy God you claim to serve, you have to show evidence of that. First John makes that clear too. That's basically a book written to show whether you're a Christian or not. You know, we know we have come uh first John two three, I think it is. We know have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If we obey God, that is evidence that we have come to know him. We can know that we have come to know him. So yeah, it's very important. Yes. Works do not save, but they will evidence our true faith in Christ. Yep. Yep. All right. Paragraph three. Uh, let's see here. So we have scroll down here. There we go. Paragraph three, Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully just charge the debt of all those that are justified, and did by the sacrifice of himself and the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due unto them, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in their behalf, yet inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only a free grace, and both the exact justice and rich grace of God, oh, that both, the exact justice and rich grace of God, might be glorified in the justification of sinners. Well, that last sentence means that salvation is not ultimately about us. Um, unlike uh, what Leighton would hold to, that uh, it, was, it was for love for of his people, uh, not primarily for God's glory. A very different view here. But we, this is really talking about what the nature of the atonement was. It, it was a mm-hmm. penal substitutionary atonement. It made full satisfaction for God's wrath. And we see that in Romans 3, um, verse 25. For whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former Sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Jesus's death was a way or was the way of satisfying the wrath of God for sins. It was a propitiation. It was the, mer- what was it called? The mercy seat, Sean? Correct me if I'm mm-hmm. wrong. Yep. The mercy seat where uh, atonement was made for sin. Uh, this is basically a parallel to Old Testament, um, to the Old Testament law.
1: Yeah, I do like uh, the language here, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in their behalf. I suspect, um, although I did not look into the background of this paragraph, so I might be wrong, that this is supposed to be uh, an explicit denial of the moral governmental uh, theory of atonement, which is essentially saying that God punished Jesus because he needed to have a punishment for sin uh, to show that uh, he was still a just moral ruler of the universe. Um, Not necessarily that the punishment of Jesus was a one-for-one punishing for the sins of his people. Uh, It was just a punishment of sin so that God would remain uh, the just ruler of the universe. But here we're getting that this is specifically an atonement for specifically your sins it's proper it's real it's full satisfaction to god's justice on your behalf because god in our sinful state we are under the wrath of god and god is perfectly just to deal with that specifically with us so he
0: makes atonement specifically for our sins yeah that's right and i that comes out of the word of faith movement this belief that Jesus um, had to go to hell literally to satisfy the wrath of God and pay for it. I don't know if you've heard of that. I think Joyce Meyer yeah. holds to that.
1: Well, you get some really weird um, interpretations where, like in Second uh, Corinthians 5.21, where Jesus become became sin on our behalf. They'll right. say that Jesus actually took on a sin nature, which is Ooh. blasphemous. Yes. Oh, yeah. That that the son of God himself would take on a sin nature is absolutely
0: horrendous, but that's how they, and that goes back to the whole infusion aspect of it versus imputation. Um, because if we believe in, if you believe in an infused righteousness and you <laughs> believe in that great exchange, then Jesus must've been infused with sin as well a, true, as actually. opposed to being imputed with sin. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's a good point. And we, we, what we're saying when we're saying that Jesus took on the wrath of God, we're not saying that Jesus actually went to hell. You know, he descended into when the, like the apostles creed said, he descended into Hades. We're not saying that Jesus literally went to the the lake of fire and suffered under demons as some have suggested. No, we we believe that hell is just simply an outpouring of God's wrath against sin. It's not a specific punishment that must be met um, in terms of, Sin, in terms of how sin ultimately must be dealt with, it's just simply God's wrath being poured out on sin. So, when God pours his wrath out on his son, he is justly punishing sin because the punishment for sin is God's wrath. So, they but they take it to mean that hell itself is is the specific punishment uh, outside of just God's wrath being the punishment for sin, and that I think is where the issue and disconnect is. Um, but we believe that God's wrath was fully satisfied. Jesus didn't have to go and subdue himself to any demons or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, I mean, that's just blasphemous. If, if you're going to say that the son of God in his divine nature, which I think is what they're implying, correct me if I'm wrong, suffered under uh, demons. I mean, you, you get into all kinds of problems with divine simplicity impassibility, passability. The, the fact that God in his divine nature can submit to something outside of himself uh, there's a there's just a lot of implications that are unbiblical in that respect. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a terrible doctrine to say the least. It, it is. Yes, it is. All right, and four, paragraph four kind of tags along with this. It says, God did from all eternity decreed to justify the all the elect, and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit doth in time do actually apply Christ unto them. And this goes back to what we've talked about before, I think it was in episode five, uh, that Christ's work only applies to the elect, does not apply to the world in general or to every human being that has ever lived and ever will live, is only for those who have uh, been elected by God. And we've talked about this before as to why that's important. You have implications for God's justice. If God is going to pay for the sins of those who will reject him and they actually reject him and go to hell and suffer the wrath of God, then God hasn't really paid for their sins. He's not being just because he's punishing them for something that he's already satisfied on their behalf. And he's lying because it wasn't finished for them. And then the implications of that for believers... They can't have really any assurance that their sins have been paid for if, in fact, it's true that God really didn't deal with the sins of those who rejected the work done for them. So there's there's a lot of problems with that. So, you know, we say that the elect were only uh, paid for. They, they were specifically being dealt with at the cross in the atonement. I also would like to point out, because
1: we did discuss in the last episode briefly, I had heard of one person um who believed that because you were justified or because you were elect from all eternity you were saved you're justified from all eternity and here we're the confession is very clearly laying out that justification happens at a point in time just mm-hmm. because we might be elect from all eternity doesn't mean that we're justified from all eternity you are justified when you believe um, and it's important to remember that not that i think that's a common viewpoint at all I guess occasionally you will run into it.
0: Do you know who, or where that, excuse me, do you know where that comes from? I'm not super, I'm not very familiar with the background of that (sighs) theological system.
1: No, um, and this view is actually being relayed from a a friend to me that she had encountered. Um, All Mm. I know is the person was a Presbyterian, but I didn't look this up. I assume this is the exact same in the Westminster, maybe a little bit different, but I, I, um, so... The Westminster lays this out, I would assume, very clearly, too. Uh, I have a hard time imagining that a, a Presbyterian would be able to believe that. I have to imagine it, it just comes from being a hyper-Calvinist and not actually being married to what the scriptures say, that you come up with these weird theories.
0: Yeah, okay. That's yeah, I don't know how in the world you would come up with that in light of what Paul yeah. talks like with Abraham he believed God at a point in time and then it was counted him as righteousness. Yes. Not, yeah. not before that. Or um, we, we, at passed least from time. death.
1: We passed from death into life or Paul saying you were children of wrath, but now that, yeah, there's so many passages that would indicate that, uh, no, there is a transition spot in time.
0: Right. But um, now maybe from God's probably from God's perspective, being outside of time, transcendent and infinite, um, that, probably doesn't apply, but from, yes, in time, we are actually justified at a specific point in time upon our repentance of faith. Uh, that's just the, the plain reading of the text. Mm-hmm. You, you'd have to do some gymnastics to get around that. Yeah. All right. All right. Paragraph five, Sean, you want to read that?
1: Yeah, sure. <laughs> God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure. And in that condition, they have not usually the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. So this is a very important uh, concept to realize because I think a lot of enemies of those who would believe in justification by faith, uh, think that we think that once you believe, you're always in a perfect, well, you, in a sense you are in a perfect relation with God but that our relationship almost never changes and it's important to remember that believers, when they sin, although they are no longer under the wrath of God in the sense of he would condemn us to hell, uh, we do fall under his fatherly displeasure and he will reprimand us, he will chasten us as sons uh, to get back to right. Uh, a right relationship in a sense he 's not a neglectful father; he does uh help uh, help us to get back onto the right path so this is this is maintaining that balance uh, so that someone won 't go through life being like, Oh well, I have faith, so now i 'm good, I can do whatever I want again it's like no, just because if you were to have faith, you would be uh secure in your salvation doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for your sin and uh, which result in God's fatherly displeasure.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that there's two cases that stand out in scripture to that. One is David, 2 Samuel 11 with David and Bathsheba, someone who did truly believe in the promises of God, believed by faith, uh, was saved, an Old Testament saint, but fell into egregious sin. He fell into adultery and he murdered somebody. He he had Uriah killed in battle. So we see that Christians can fall into very serious sin, but they won't stay there. David stayed in his state of unrepentance or lack of repentance for a long time. It's probably I don't know if you read the story, you know, Bathsheba is pregnant, then she has the baby, and then Nathan comes to him. So probably at least a year before David repented of his sins. So we can see, Christians can wallow in sin for a long time, but God will not leave them there. There will be growth in holiness, there will be repentance, and Psalm 51 is the evidence of David's deep-rooted repentance from his sin and turning back to God. Um, but we, we do know that Christians will still sin in this life. Uh, we see this in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That implies that we still sin and it's in the present tense One verse verse 8 says that if we say we don't have sin we we're liars we're not speaking the truth so christians will still struggle with sin but there's a difference in a christian sinning frequently and john macarthur's talked about this difference in a christian sinning frequently and practicing sin someone who is bent towards sin and in living according to their sinful nature and a Christian who's struggling with it, and we're growing in our repentance, but still understanding our sin nature is there um, so the, those things are important to recognize um but one thing that's interesting too is they don't talk about here in, in paragraph five that we actually lose our salvation as a our, and we're still secure, our justification is final, and that is important to to recognize in spite of our sin. Our standing before God is still not guilty when we are justified. We're still in the tribunal of God. God sees us as not guilty and accept us because of Christ. But because our lives still must exhibit that holiness, and he wants us to grow more in a practical sense like himself, we will not be left to ourselves. And if we are, then that evidences that we probably weren't saved at all.
1: Yes, exactly. And before we move on to paragraph six, I think uh, Dan mentioned something interesting that leads right into paragraph six. Uh, he used the example of David and Bathsheba and then went on to talk about Christians as if there was a continuity um, that we could use Old Testament saints' examples uh, to understand what's going on with Christians. And that, and paragraph six says the justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. So this, while dispensationalism wouldn't come around until the 1800s, so this precedes this from some time, uh, this is essentially an attack on dispensationalism and hyper-dispensationalism, which would say that uh, those in the Old Testament and those in the New Testament are justified in two different ways, almost. Uh, Mm -hmm. They they are justified in two different ways, but this isn't true. The Old Testament believers, while their knowledge of the coming Messiah was very much unclear or more unclear, uh, they are justified in the exact same way we are, and that is by faith. Uh, And that's why Paul in Galatians and in Romans can appeal to Abraham as an example for us, for how we're justified. Otherwise, it, it wouldn't make any sense.
0: Right, you would expect him to say well Abraham had his own thing over here and we have our own mm-hmm. thing over here. Now if it Paul's argument is that faith be, because Abraham believed by faith he can be the father of both Jews and Gentiles, he does not indicate there is a different set for Jews and a different set for Gentiles in terms of the methodology of salvation. Yeah, that that's it's unified. Abraham is our father just as he's the father of the circumcised, the Jews. So it's it's very uh, it's very important to recognize that. I don't know how they miss that. Like huh. brother, you know, guys like Brother MacArthur, they they continue to, to be Calvinists but hold to a dispensational worldview. It, it's I don't know yeah. how they miss verses like that.
1: I don't know because it's hyper dispensationalists that definitely see justification as happening in two different ways. I don't quite know if your regular run of the mill dispensationalist would say that justification happens in two different ways um i'm not so they're probably say, being
0: inconsistent with their own system then
1: you know i used to be a dispensationalist but that was when i was a very young christian i don't know enough about it now to say whether or not it's inconsistent or not um, mm. i'd have to i'd have to look into some of their writings Okay. The point is, now I see the unity of God's plan (laughs) and uh, don't even need to pay attention to the system of dispensationalism.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for joining us, everybody. Uh, That's all we have for today. We finished chapter 11. We actually went through each and every paragraph this time. Um, So we will be continuing our study through the confession. Uh, Hopefully, we'll be closing out of the confession here soon, but there are at least a probably a few more chapters we want to hit on before ending our series, but uh, everybody have a great weekend and Lord willing, we will see you next week. Have a good one.